So welcome uh, to part seven of our study this uh, semester, that we're going, semester, uh, this quarter, uh, going through this question of what it means to be the church in the world. Uh, We've at least been trying to uncover the complexity uh, of this question and how how it's not necessarily obvious to people in our day uh, exactly how it is that we're supposed to live as Christians in the midst of a changing society. Um, I do think that there's one thing that can be fairly uh, evident, and if you're below the age of 30, this may be a bit of a surprise to you, but we're on a rapid change uh, course from the last uh, 10 to 15 years uh, culturally in America and other places. And so asking a fresh question about what it means to be the church in the world uh, is kind of a big deal. So what we've done up until this time is we've looked at this question of being a Christian in the terminology of the idea of the church and the idea of the kingdom. Those has been our two big overarching descriptions of how the Bible talks about you if you profess to be a Christian in the world. That is, there is this primary sort of um, uh, sociological thing, this, 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 this entity, this uh, membership that you have in a church. But the Bible doesn't really have an idea of a Christian who is not part of the church. Don't get mixed up on the church membership question for that matter. But it conceives you as being a group, a body of people who constitute the church. But it also talks about this realm that God himself is advancing on uh, with the heartbeat of uh, of Jesus' work on the cross. So that as the gospel begins to penetrate people's hearts, the gospel then begins to penetrate every single corner of life, uh, whether it be in the secular world or the private world, whether it be in the uh, uh, religious world or the other world. In other words, the kingdom of God is a broader concept. And what, what I tried to commend to you through this whole experience, through looking at some takeaways thus far, um, is, uh, is this simple idea. Um, for your theological liberals they tend to sort of take the church and sort of dumb down what the church is really about. Uh, They take things that we would consider, at least at Christ's prayers, to be essential truths. The reliability of the Bible. Uh, That Jesus was an actual human person that actually was crucified for our sins and actually rose again from the dead by a miraculous experience. Um, A theological liberal tends to sort of fade away in those things Uh, diminish those things, even sometimes deny those things straight up, in order to go out and do the real work of the world, which is to fix uh, social problems. Okay? We took some issue with that. We also said that theological conservatives have themselves another problem. We would obviously theologically be much more aligned with these people, but in their sort of fundamentalist version, it's almost as if they tend to think that if anything good is going to happen in the world... It needs to be funneled through the actual administration of the local church. In other words, if you take that out to its logical end, churches begin to sort of swallow up more and more and more of areas in the culture that maybe, I tried to pitch to you, they should let go of to uh, those other people, which is where we came to our idea, which is that the church should major in her majors. And I tried to pitch to you that there were three of those things. The church does the word really well. It does sacraments really well, and it does pastoral oversight and care really well. I would argue that when the church sort of moves away from those things, she, ends getting, she, she drifts further and further away from the centrality of her mission, what her majors are. And she ought to be okay with looking at those people who are doing work in the world or the kingdom 
and letting those things go, okay? Then we talked about a couple of people that I felt like were being very helpful in this discussion. The first of which was a guy named Andy Crouch, who is still writing and still blogging. You need to look him up, read his little book, Culture Making. I say little book, it's actually a fairly substantive book. But Crouch uh, sort of gave us a couple of handholds that I thought really helped us crystallize this idea. And what he said was, is that we need to begin to look and focus our efforts locally. That the culture around us is what we make of the world. And what he means by that is what you make of your world. What is the tiny little cross-section of God's world that God has called you to? Because the idea is to allow his kingship to come to rule over that particular area. Crouch also spent a lot of time educating us about the idea of power, that power needs to be used creatively and carefully to create equity and justice, because God is a God who is concerned about equity and justice. He then got us thinking about the fact that sin is not only a personal problem, the things I do wrong, the condition that I have, but that sin can also sort of take over the very structures that we operate in, so that it's possible to work in a company that has all people within it converted individuals, but that the rules and operations of the company are actually oppressive to the poor and hurt people and do less things to advance God's kingdom. Hmm, interesting. So we turned from Crouch and then looked to a, um, a professor at UVA by the name of James Davidson Hunter, who taught us about the phrase of being a faithful presence. Hunter's idea is that God's people need to sort of give up on these world-changing aspirations because it so rarely happens in such short periods of time, and instead focus on networks of influence, watching people group together, forming networks of people. He calls them cultural elites. It's not a very popular phrase from his writings, but they talk about the people who know their industry well. And, know, and can think well about their industry and the way in which the gospel influences that. When those networks get together, they become forces for change. Okay? We then talked a little bit about what it means to show up in the life of those around you. Hunter does a great uh, work on the incarnation uh, of people's lives, to be incarnated in a place. Then last week, we started talking about Tim Keller's uh, influence on this conversation. Uh, and Tim Keller talked to, talked to us a little bit about what it meant to live in the already and the not yet, that we live in a place where the gospel has already shown up. It's making its mark, but because of the continuing effects of sin, we're not there yet. And that not, that's not only true in our own souls, which is typically the way we think about it. Um, you know, I can see places where God's grace has shown up in my life, but I ain't there yet. That's true in the world around us. And you will find yourself getting frustrated, culturally speaking, when you lose the balance of that dynamic. You get frustrated when one or the other seems to be the way things should be. In other words, you can get despairing about the culture because of its sin, which means you're emphasizing the not yet against the already. Or you can get triumphalistic and be angry at why the fact is the world's not changing if you don't realize that we're not yet there. But God's grace is still showing up. Keller then talked to us a little bit about seeing the church as a counterculture, that what we do here is intending to be uh, a microcosm of what we long to see going out in the world, which is one of the reasons why the Bible gets very anxious about us learning to get along with each other, learning to be generous to those around us, learning to deal with our sexuality in ways in which the world may roll their eyes as oppressive and retrograde, but that we recognize as central what it means to be the people of God. 
And then finally, Keller thinks that we need to rethink our methods of outreach in a new cultural context. In other words, we are living in a unique time and need to pay attention to the uniqueness of this time, which is what we're going to talk about today. For the next five uh, or six weeks, uh, myself and some other guest teachers, uh, I'm still sort of working through... um, uh, when, when, when you anticipate the possibility of making a job change, you got to pack in some of your travel into one semester. So I, I apologize that I won't be able to be with you each week all the way through the end of February, but uh, we've got some great people that are going to come and work on this other thing. I want to talk about this church kingdom dynamic as it affects a handful of areas, okay? I chose some areas that I think are kind of hot topics, if you will, Uh, among what a Christian tends to argue about. And first, what I want to talk about this week and next is the idea of evangelism. What do we mean by evangelism? How do we conceive of evangelism? And my guess is, if you're a normal, southern, religious kind of Christian person, when I say the word evangelism, you immediately kind of think, oh, are we doing that now? Are we doing that now? Um, So now we're all going to go and get up, and i got to go talk to my coworker and be like, hey, Tommy, so uh, hold on. If you died tonight, would you know for sure? Is that what we're talking about? I want to expand on that idea today and next week and sort of move us away from that particular idea. I want to spend some time talking about the arts. What does it mean for me to be a creative person uh, in the world in which I live? Uh, What does it mean for us to understand science? Can I be a Christian and actually have a positive view of the scientific world? We live in a university community where scientists are everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, I want to spend an entire week talking about marriage and sexuality. Uh, If you haven't noticed, there's all kinds of talk. Uh, Even this week, hearing the pronouncement of the end of the sexual revolution. We're going to talk all about that. And then we're going to finish with a discussion on the question of being a Christian in the midst of politics. What does it mean for us to be there? So, all that to say is stay tuned. But I wanted to do a uh, uh, sort of... um, takeaways thus far for that. So if you've got questions about this, don't be afraid to ask. Some people have been like, I don't know who Andy Crouch and Hunter and who is Keller. That's fine. You don't have to know those people before you come here. I do think that if you're looking to get interested in the topic, start with those three and you would be better off for it. Okay? So um, I want to dive into this question about uh, evangelism and sort of recognize very early on that we kind of find ourselves in a moment of, of crisis about evangelism. Um, how do we get across the message of the gospel in this strange new world? Well, um, uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote a, a, a little article uh, that was actually an article adaptation of a message that he had done uh, at a conference about 10 years ago on speaking the gospel to a postmodern uh, world. And I literally am lifting these notes from uh, his article, which I would commend to you uh, online and in other places. But he refers early on in this message to an old uh, preacher uh, named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. There he is. Doesn't he look kind and welcoming and winsome to a postmodern context? Um, uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones, I think, passed away like in the 70s, maybe the 80s or so. Uh, But he was a Welsh preacher uh, living in England at the time and uh, 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 got the chance to witness a lot of great stuff. He was a master in Puritan theology and just one of those great sort of Reformed uh, teachers that we like to kind of lean on. Well, Keller takes a section out of a sermon that Lloyd-Jones preached in 1959. 1959, the Eisenhower administration is just wrapping up. Kennedy and Nixon are campaigning left and right. And he preaches this message on Mark chapter 9 
where the disciples are coming down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus glow, for Pete's sakes, right? And they're coming down, and they're trying to exercise this new power by casting a demon out of somebody, out of this little boy. But after a while, they couldn't do it. Jesus comes along, rebukes the demon, and it finally comes out. And the disciples look at Jesus. Do you remember the story? And they're like, why couldn't we cast him out? Like, we did all the, you know, mumbo-jumbo that you do, you know. We waved our magic wand. We said the magic words. Why, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus looks at him and says in Mark uh, 9, 28 and 29, that this kind, this kind can only be driven out by something, uh, that, that can only be driven out by prayer. And what Jesus was teaching, according to Lloyd-Jones was, is that this sort of uh, <clears throat> methods that they had been using to deal with this particular demon in the soul of this boy that their methods were not working. They had failed to account for the severity of the situation. And so Lloyd-Jones builds this entire sermon around this idea that the boy is like modern culture. And the disciples are a little bit like the modern church, hoping that the methods that they've always used in the past are going to be able to drive the demons out of this particular culture. And what what Lloyd-Jones begins to say is, is they realize that there's a change in their situation. That what we have now in the modern world, according to Lloyd-Jones, is we have a modern world where uh, where apathy and spiritual sleeplessness um, is, 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 is more rampant than it was in days gone past. And here's what he says. He says, the kind of problem facing us in the modern world, 1959, is altogether deeper and more desperate. The very belief in God has virtually gone. The average man today believes that all this belief about God and religion and salvation is a demon uh, of human nature all throughout the centuries. It is no longer merely a question of immorality. This has become an amoral and non-moral society. The very category of morality is not recognized. The power that the disciples had was a good power, and it was able to do good work in casting out feeble devils. But it was of no value in the case of that boy. And what Lloyd-Jones begins to talk about is what do we need to develop in terms of a rigorous involvement in this new world about reaching this world? And he was saying there was a crisis. (laughs) Well, there was a crisis in 1959. I don't think it's getting much better. Because we don't live in a modern world, okay? We live actually in a postmodern world where some of the ideas of, theolo- of, of systematic and scientific advancement as an overarching cure for, for worldviews and a rejection of theology on that particular rights has gone completely in favor of a view of the world that believes in none of those things doesn't even believe that sort of ideas that would undergird a society can be uh, 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 cross-cultural. Talk more about that in just a second. But the bottom line is, is that in the old days, you used to be able to count on a culture being somewhat basically familiar with Christian ideas before you went in to evangelize them. But what's happened in our world now is there's almost been sort of a experiences in the life of especially the Western church that have begun to inoculate people against the gospel. And what we're trying to suggest is, is that this is actually worse. Um, So much so that other people are beginning to talk about the decline um, and the struggle of looking at the West 
as a place that needs to be evangelized. You know, for most of us, we look at America, at least if you're older than 45, 50 years old, you're like, well, America, you know, we're the, we're the pace setter for the world. We send our missionaries out to save all those poor people out there. That has changed underneath you, if you haven't noticed. The, the centers, the, the sort of cultural centers of Christianity have migrated, past tense. They have migrated to Africa, northern India, and China. Those are where the influence centers will be in the next 50 to 100 years, period. That's not, that's not speculative. That's already sort of happening. So what is that left for us? It means that a lot of the basic truths about the reliability and wisdom of the Bible have been totally discarded. Because there used to be this day where you could come and count on those things, and now they're not there. But what's happened is post-Christian society is in many ways worse than a... Um, a lapsed Christian society. So here's the question, like, where do you think you live today? (laughs) Especially if you have any sort of view towards the next generation. Who are these college students that are showing up in the the seats of Christ Presbyterian every week? It's easy to think, wow, if we could just go back to the good old days when everybody was as faithful to Christianity like I was, like we were. You know, we didn't have these things. We didn't have these cell phones, for Pete's sakes. You know, what's wrong with these kids today? You know what's fun is to go back and watch your... Okay, this was, this was not in the notes, so danger, danger. Um, Ginger and I you know, had this reminiscence. So back in the days, kids, there used to be these things called music videos, okay? And all the rock stars would do it, and there was a whole channel where you could watch it called MTV. But you were one of the cool people... Uh, if you already had MTV in the early 1980s. But we didn't have it because we didn't have cable television at, <laughs> at that time. You know, we were still you know, rabbit ears. But on Friday nights, the NBC affiliate in Memphis would show Friday night videos. You know? And you would stay up late from 10 to midnight and watch all the videos that your cool friends could watch. You know? uh, it was awesome, you know, Friday night videos. Well, the crazy thing is Ginger and I switched our little TV package recently and we're now getting something called MTV Classic. Isn't that a sign of getting old when the stuff that you're into is now classic? <laughs> Somebody goes up and looks at your clothes and are going, wow, vintage. I'm going, no, fresh, no. So Ginger and I have gotten to where the last couple of Friday nights we're sitting up and watching the videos that we watched when we were in junior high and high school. That'll cure you of the idea that the 80s were the pure generation. I promise you. You'll go back and be like, man, did my parents know I was watching this? What in the world? But we long for this old time when things were good. I promise you that we live in a time now where that stuff has gone. The undergirdings have gone. And what's happened is our culture now, in a post-Christian context, has developed what Keller calls spiritual antibodies. That is the ideas that have come now everywhere in our society that have undergirded our attempts to even do basic Christian evangelism. So that whereas many years ago you could count on there being some vague ideas about who God is, what we claim about the Bible, the person and work of Jesus, those things are gone. And that means that we have to change our methodologies like Martin Lloyd-Jones says we need, need, uh, needs to. Uh, there's some great historical work that you can look at um, uh, that, that Keller kind of unpacks in this article where he comes to sort of, uh, out, um, uh, sort of come through this idea of being inoculated to Christianity. Keller will use it in other places, this idea of there being defeaters inside uh, people's hearts. 
defeaters that are basically saying, I'm not, I can't even get off the ground to talk about Christianity because of these ideas that have so uh, grabbed us on the inside. Yeah, the spiritual antibodies and defeaters. And so what that means is, is in, in, in evangelism going forward, Keller is trying to suggest that there are no more magic bullets. There's no more magic bullets to reaching the next generation with the gospel. As we are called to be faithful as a church in a country that has left Christianity behind. It's very different to have a a spirituality that is sort of less than vital versus a spirituality that is post-Christianity. That's the difference. And so therefore what you have is, is you have people who are wrestling with evangelism at all. And if we were really honest, we would go back and look at these older programs of evangelism that were based around personal one-on-one uh, uh, moments of confrontation. I don't mean that in a negative way, but to confront someone with their worldview on a one-on-one basis, hoping that in that moment there would be a great shifting change once they realize, uh, realize the truth of what we're saying and the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, that people are converted right out of the gate. The older forms of those things, Keller is suggesting in his, what, 35 years in, of pastoral ministry in New York, have all gone the way of the dinosaur and are no longer even being used in churches that are doing cultural work. Keller even goes on to say that if we're honest, we should admit that many churches are growing large without any evangelism at all. In some places, churches will actually grow simply from what we call transfer growth. You know, transfer growth is, is just people kind of hopping from church to church to church. And a church can look at itself and pat itself on the back for all the people that are there, When really, the only reason why they're there is because they've gotten them from other places. There's been no evangelistic effort at all. The bottom line is there's a fundamental sort of divide between America in their cultural, political, and economic life. There's a faster growing, I'm quoting from uh, New York Magazine here, there's a quicker growing, economically vibrant, morally relativist, urban-oriented, culturally adventuresome, sexually polymorphous, means it can take on any shape it wants, an ethically diverse nation. And there's the small-town, nuclear family, religiously-oriented, white-centric other America with diminishing cultural and political force. Did you catch that? The urbanizing sort of uh, uh, motions of liberalizing relativism is moving much faster than sort of the religiously-oriented... By small-town, it doesn't mean small-town like Oxford. It means small-town thinking. Okay? So there we are. And so what that means then is we've got a struggle in three areas. Number one, there's a truth problem. For so many people today, any truth claim uh, is seen as something that is an exercise in power. If you are trying to say that something is absolutely true, it's no longer uh, an argument about whether or not, a philosophical argument about whether or not there can be um, uh, uh, absolute truth. That was what it was like in the 70s and 80s for us. You know, we can there be absolute truth? Well, there is no absolute truth. And we were always like, ha-ha! What do you mean there can be an absolute truth? What about the fact that there is no absolute truth? Is that an absolute truth? <laughs> and it was fun to play those games, right? Now, any claim to absolute truth is not just, oh, they tied me up in philosophical knots. I need to go think about this. Now it's like, what are you up to? Because actually, your truth claim makes me feel uncomfortable. And if it makes me feel uncomfortable, that's hate speech, and you need to, your voice needs to be silenced. And we'll do whatever we have to. We will employ all the means at our disposal, including public shaming, to make certain that your voice is silenced. 
In other words, what Nietzsche said so long ago, you know, Nietzsche was the guy who said, look, the God thing is done. We're gone. There is no God. We're out of here. All you really have, and he was exactly right, if you have no authority that is outside the experience of man, are people who have the most power. If you're holding someone at the end of the gun, you're running that conversation. That's what totalitarianism is. And it begins in the minds of people who no longer have discourse, but actually only have the will to power. Well, we may not have like physical guns, if you're a white person, if you're an African-American, I think, worry a lot about physical guns in this world. But if you actually only have your... <clears throat> in our world, it's no longer sort of physical guns, it's actually public shaming. Is the new weaponry of conformity. There is no truth. And not only that, not only is there no truth, if you claim to have truth, you're trying to pull a power play on me, and I'm ready for you. I have the ultimate b- b- battlefront, and that is your public shaming. We'll find some dirt on you. And they will. Of course they will. <clears throat> Secondly, there's a guilt problem. You know, guilt was mainly a neuroses of the modern era, and it's still considered a problem. But now the sense of guilt is increasingly absent. You, you, if you build up sort of a secular um, uh, um, psychological industry that is built on the, on the resolution of guilt, or at least the dissolution, the, the removal of guilt, people might actually start to believe that after a while. And therefore, they believe that any sort of sensation of guilt should absolutely be immediately denied. That's difficult for us, is it not? Because we're kind of asking the question of those people, you know what, you might ought to like follow that guilt, <laughs> pull on that string. Let's see where that goes. And they're looking going, no, I would never pull on that string. I would never even admit that it's there. So the idea of guilt is gone. And then finally, meaning. Then see people looking and saying, you keep talking about the Bible and what it means. How do you know what it means? This, this, is, this is a 2,000-year-old text. What could it possibly say to me, first of all, without realizing the culture in which it was said and realizing that we are utterly antithetical to that culture and therefore what possible meaning could it have for me in our world other than some simple, vague platitudes about, oh, we ought to love each other. Now, that's who Jesus is to most people. I love the teachings of Jesus because he taught people to love each other. <laughs> Did you read anything else of what he said? Actually, that's some other things that were kind of hard to, t- hard to swallow. Look, this is my point. What Keller is suggesting is, is that the ground underneath our feet in the world of evangelical thinking about what it means to be the church to reach the world, which I'll bet if we interviewed everybody in this room, you would say, as a Christian, you want for that to happen. That the ground underneath our feet has completely changed. And it requires us to rethink the question. And so Keller goes on to identify six ideas. We're going to do two this morning and four next week that should help reshape our thinking about evangelism. Okay? Um, So here's where we're going to kind of dive into this here with Keller on evangelism. Look at his smiling face. He looks like a budding urbanite right there. Two things, gospel theology and gospel realization. Keller's going to want to come and talk about Gospel theology and gospel realization. Keller is convinced with this simple idea, and I think he's convinced a lot of people, myself included, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as both an organizing principle for what the Bible is about and the ultimate apologetic to a world who has walked away from the truth, has to be central. Okay? Now, I don't know how used you are to talking about the gospel in that way, but what I want to do this week and next, actually Melvin's going to do it next week, is to begin to unpack 
what we mean when we say what the gospel is, okay? Keller begins to sort of boot off of the story of Jonah, which I won't spend near as much time as he does in his article. But basically, the first thing that he says is, we have to deal with people's idea of the gospel being like the elementary truths. He said the gospel is like Christian preschool. You get that down very early on. You learn to color in between the lines, right? Uh, You get your ABCs down. Uh, You fit the, the block into the right shape, right? And then you move on to the much more advanced stuff. That's theology. Keller's whole point is, though, that was completely wrong because he says that all theology ultimately is an exposition of the gospel. All theology is an exposition of the gospel. And he pulls out a fascinating book that I was not familiar with, so I'll just report of it as, a, as, a, as an interesting sort of idea. Mark Thompson, A Clear and Present World, where he's trying to write to a, to, in a very academic setting about people's objections to hearing about the Bible. This is not that hard to, uh, to understand because you live in a world, uh, Thompson describes, that basically is selling, look, no meaning is stable. And when you, even when you use a word, we really can't say what that word really means. It's all up in the air. And, and Thompson in this little book, A Clear and Present Word, was his, uh, uh, A Clear and Present Word, is basically saying, how do you go, <laughs> how do you teach the Bible to somebody who's kind of like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um, you, you're all into this theology stuff. But how do you know that words themselves have any meaning? And so Thompson goes into actually a fairly clever description of this where he says, but think about this for a minute. Our God is not just a unity. In the Christian sort of story of life, God is not singular. He is multi-persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is three persons and one essence, according to uh, our Christian theology, right? So in the midst of that sort of um, Trinitarian idea, God creates the world. But if he creates the world, what did he do it because he was lonely? You've heard me talk about this before. God did not create the world because he was lonely. He created the world because in his own internal self, his internal unity, there are three persons who do what with each other? They communicate. And they communicate specifically by glorifying the other. Jesus is very clear about saying, I'm here to glorify my Father in heaven. And eventually, he's going to glorify me on the cross. And once that happens, the Spirit is going to glorify us both by marching throughout human history and conquering. But Thompson's point is, those happen in words. Well, here's his description of it. This is what, uh, this is what got Keller got all excited. He said, The gospel is the right and proper judgment of God against our rebellion. That our rebellion has not been... Um, the gospel is that the right and proper judgment of God has been overturned. It's been exhausted and embraced in full by the eternal Son of God Himself. And so God uses words. He uses words in the service of His intention to rescue men and women, to draw them into fellowship with Him and prepare a new creation as an appropriate venue for the enjoyment of that fellowship. In other words, listen to this, the knowledge of God that is the goal of God speaking ought never to be separated from the centerpiece of Christian theology. Did you catch that? You don't need to take out of your beliefs about God this idea that He is a God who saves sinners. That's the center. <laughs> that is at the heart of what we call redemptive history. You know, the Bible traces history through it. What is that Bible about? What is the story of the Bible? It's a story about God saving sinners. Now, why in the world is this so important? It's the importance of words. 
The reason is, is because the gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life like it were a set of stairs. See, I started the gospel, but then I go to the next step of more advanced stuff. Rather, Keller is saying, it's really more like the hub of a wheel. Everything, as it comes out of Christian thinking about what the Bible means, begins in the, in the gospel. Look, for this point, that means that we've got to have... Um, we have to get a sense of the core of the gospel every time we speak, Keller says. Everything that we say has got to have God's mission in its flavor. It's got to have God's mission of wanting to save sinners in its flavor. It also means that the gospel of God doing this, um, it, it becomes the center of everything in our thinking. Redemptive history is the history of the Bible. And then finally, what he's saying is, is um, unless we ground everything that we say in the gospel, we have no hope of reaching this world. Now, look, I used a little phrase from Keller last week, and it was a little bit heady, and I kind of whizzed past it, but I kind of want to camp out it for about a minute right now. And that was where Keller was saying that in this modern world, we have to look at the gospel as if it is subversive fulfillment of another person's worldview. Don't let that, don't let that confuse you. It blind you with science. All he's saying is that because of common grace, there is something that even your pagan mind is aspiring to. And if you're not listening, there's equity and justice is the only conversation going on culturally right now. As a Christian, Keller's saying is, we can enter that conversation and be like, you know what? I'm down with that. Equity and justice are vitally important. And I believe the gospel's got an answer to it. But you know what? When it answers that question, it's going to totally subvert whatever you're building your life on right now. That's this whole thing. The gospel uniquely has ability to go to whether you find yourself a political liberal or whether you find yourself a political conservative and say, I understand your aspirations and I can actually go with you down a road towards those aspirations. But in the end, Jesus is going to flip your world upside down. He's going to subvert those claims and fulfill them in ways that you don't necessarily realize. Because this culture, what they're longing for, again, if we go to with facts and sort of figures and whatnot, they're wanting the story. They want to know the narrative. Again, which is not wrong. But what we have to do in the work of the church is making sure that this great theology, that frankly, the Reformed tradition, of which Christ Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in in America are deeply rooted that we've got to work on that theology sort of being married to our stories in such a way that doesn't sort of diminish either one. Because here's the truth. The facts can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. The Bible is inerrant. There are no errors in Scripture. The Bible does not contradict itself across passages. The Bible is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, true. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it is all true. That has got to be born. But it will likely be born, and what it, I think what we tend to do, I think, in, in our tradition, this is talking about the PCA, is we're like, you know what? The world out there hates theology. You know what we're going to do? We're going to give it to them even more. <laughs> that's a little bit of the posture of some PCA churches. I think that's fair. Maybe it's us sometimes. I don't know. But I think what, what Keller is saying is, is, is there a way to embody those truths in our stories more fully so that our theology and our stories are coming together better? That's the question. 
Think of it this way. It is, let me read this here. We cannot just tack on our theology as like a, uh, an abstract um, in, 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 in theology. Um, but we have to realize that the only proper venue for enjoyment of the fellowship of God, the only proper way in which we can think about the world changing, the only proper way we can look around at Oxford and Lafayette County and say, where has sin made its mark and how can I be a part the, about the solution? The only proper starting point for that is transformation in your heart, in your story. Go back to my whole thing. Remember when I said a while back, this whole, Les, what is the relationship between the church and the kingdom? And I said that I think this, O. Palmer Robertson is right, that the church is the impetus for the kingdom. What's impetus? The spark plug, the sort of, uh, the, the engine cranking for the kingdom. What we do here is intending to cast vision for you to go out into your various stations of life, of which there are a multitude in this room, and see the kingdom of God come to bear in those places. But it starts with the transformation of stories, of your story, of your heart. In other words, church and kingdom can actually be, we can say it this way, a changed heart is the impetus for the change of Oxford and Lafayette County. So what are we going to do here? We're going to talk about our hearts. We're going to talk about what it means for the gospel to work on me. It's going to be, we'll talk about what it means for the gospel to transform my vision. And I'm going to pick up and I'm going to go out there and it's going to be, I'm going to be assaulted by all kinds of ideas and all kinds of, of, of challenges to that. But then I'm going to come back next week <laughs> and I'm going to try to figure out again, what does it mean for my heart to have been changed? Gospel theology. We've got to work to get to keep the gospel as story and fact together. And then finally, this will take a second. Gospel realizing. Keller was really good about talking about what it means for someone to wrestle with growth as a Christian. Because most of us think, well, I really need the advanced stuff to grow as a Christian, right? But he goes back and tells this story about Jonah. Remember, he roots all this little thing in Jonah. Where Jonah gets to this point where he starts to run away from what he knows God wants him to do. He wants him to go to Nineveh. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh's terrible. Those people are terrible. Nobody wants to be in Nineveh. I hate those people. You know what they did to our ancestry in Nineveh? They don't want to go to Nineveh. But, of course, God has to teach him a hard lesson. He goes through hard experiences. In the end, what does he stand up and say? Salvation is of the Lord. Edmund Clowney, a professor at Westminster, said that's, that's a great summary of the gospel. Salvation is of the Lord. Um, that's, another, that's another topic for another time. But, it's, but Keller's point is, is that for, for Jonah, it wasn't that he came to new information it was that the experiences that he had drove that information deeper or maybe drove it out from the depth of his heart into his actual practice. And what Keller says is, is that is a fascinating gospel dynamic. That when we think about what it means for me to grow, we're not waiting for the more advanced stuff. Well, Les, we've already done the gospel. We've already talked about that. When are we going to get to the, to the real hard stuff? And Keller's like, that needs to be reversed. The question needs to be about how the gospel works its way out of my life over and over again. Keller tells the story about being in college and fighting with a vending machine. You know how you get the vending machine that's got all the candy and the chips up in it? And you sort of stick your, 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 your nickels in, you know, and you press the right buttons. And the little thing starts to turn. And you kind of have to hold your breath there. Like it's a little surprise if it actually falls, you know. And it gets in all of a sudden, ah! kind of freezes and you're like, no. 
and there's a sort of exercise that you had to put like, you know, shatterproof glass on the vending machines because people would go going boom, you're boom, you're trying to shake it loose and whatnot. And what Keller says is he's like this, you know, you may be able to get an A on your justification by faith test. Okay? But if there's not a radical concrete growth in humble love for your enemies, then do you really know that you're saved by grace? Does that make sense? I can know it, but do I know it? In other words, has it made it to the realm of my experience? Now look, look, look. When I was a kid and I heard preacher types like myself talk like that, I'd be like, oh, great. No, no, I don't live it right. And immediately what I would do is I'd be like, well, you know what? All right, you know, work harder or less if you, if you quit start making excuses for your praying. And church was this experience of kind of getting a swift kick in the pants, you know? Uh, and that's really what it was about. Like I, probably once a week I need a good spanking uh, from up front. So go ahead, preacher man, tell me what I did wrong this week. Right, 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 you know, and kind of do it. But this is gospel realizing. <laughs> in other words, what Keller is saying is, it's like when I get to a point where I discover and say, man, I can't stand that person. And all I can do is stop and daydream about telling them off and like doing them physical bodily harm. Um, that's not good. I don't know what to do about that. Instead of sort of racing back towards busy, 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 busy guilt manipulation, what if I go back to, you know, somewhere in this, I think I might have missed something. Is it possible that I have, as I've gone back to rework the calculus of the gospel, that I missed a calculation somewhere? Or that I'm, I'm refusing to repent of something somewhere? Maybe there's a blind spot that I don't know about that my wife has been trying to tell me about over and over and over again. My kids have been screaming at me about that my coworkers would know if I just asked. Hmm. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. And so Keller basically says, we need a vending machine gospel where we go up and we sort of put the, corner, the coins in and when it doesn't fall, we just beat it out. <laughs> you know, slam up against that thing and shake it loose. And that's what he says should happen. The more advanced you are in the gospel, the more you shake yourself until those products drop. In other words, what he's talking about is genuine revival, Right? In other words, what we long to see is people who see greater... For a postmodern context, they've got to see it in your life somewhere. The integrity of a human story is the point. And by the way, if you heard me say the integrity of a human story that has their life together, you missed the entire conversation. It's as they see us not participate in Halloween because that's the devil's birthday that we will really make the couple. Is that what you mean, Les? No. I don't know why Halloween popped in my head at that point. That's not it. When they say a consistency of story, you know what it probably means? Owning the fact that you don't know what's going on. Owning the fact that you barely understand yourself. Owning the fact that there are contradictions all over your life that you hope are decreasing. But it begins in that place. The irony of that is, the Bible's calculus means the more I own those inconsistencies, the more consistent a person I am. So that suddenly we become like what J.I. Packer said, that growth in grace is growth downward. It's getting a greater realization of how far I am from God's purposes in my life. But then all of a sudden, the bigness of the cross to bridge that chasm, and in a strange moment, your life is transformed. You become a holy person. 
Not because you tried real hard and got really back on the treadmill, but what happened was because you had a gospel realization that I'm a greater sinner than I thought. And you know what? The more I learned at church what a great sinner I was, the less condescending I was to that person at work because I just couldn't because I knew the junk that was going on in my own heart. And I stopped condescending to me. And this is the weird thing. When I stopped condescending to that person, they actually started talking. And we had some amazing conversations when I stopped beating them over the head with my perfect life or what I wanted everybody to believe was a perfect life, right? So in the end, what we find is gospel-centered ministry means a realization of wonder. That when we come here and begin to talk amongst ourselves, what we're looking for is let us love and praise and wonder. Let us sing the Savior's name. He has crushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That wonder is what this is about. Like, what is my anticipation of coming into worship on Sunday morning? I mean, it's okay if there's a variety of, of, of you know, motives in that, <laughs> 98% of which are bad. But somewhere in there, we'd like to slide in this one idea that what if when we came to church on Sunday morning, the anticipation was to be like, do it again. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton tells a great story about why we have repetition in nature. Why does the sun rise every morning? Well, look, what happened with your little kids when you amazed them? Do you ever do the, do you ever do the thumb detachment game with people? You know, Hey, look, son, look at this. And your kid's just kind of like, oh, your thumb came off, and now it's back on. How did you do that? What's the first thing a child says when you say that? Do it again. Do it again. Daddy, do it again. Chesterton says that's the reason why the sun comes up every morning. Come on, God, do it again. And that's what our anticipation is to come into Sunday morning, I think. Hey, 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 that gospel thing, (laughs) do it again. Because I want to see it. Because as that wonder begins to take place in my heart, it begins to be compelling for the world. All right, I'll have five minutes for a question. An unprecedented five minutes for life-enriching Q&A that Greg Davidson is going to start us off with. Yes, Greg. So, are they embarrassed by it? That's a complete fiction. That's right. Completely false. Well, the funny thing is, yeah, what Greg is saying is, is secularists, people who are trying to do a thoroughgoing anti-God worldview, are predicting the demise of Christianity because that's what they want to see. And what I think Keller and other writers are bringing out is, is like, yes, Christianity is on the decline among wealthy, privileged people. There's some sense in which that's true. However, it's booming among the people that, oh, I don't know, Jesus said that it would happen well with. The poor, the marginalized, the outcast. Africa, northern India, China. Where the persecution is happening, that's where it's booming. So the more affluent that we get, the less it moves away. And Greg's making another thing point, another great point, which is as intellectuals begin to wrestle through this, they're not rejecting it, they're actually embracing it. That's absolutely true. It's, it's, a, it's a projection of something that they'd like to be true. But look, here's the deal. If you're looking at being like, so what is Les trying to make me insecure about the world of my grandchildren? Is that, do I need to despair about that? No, because God's church has thrived in the midst of oppressive regimes. That's what it's doing in China right now. So no, I think we need to look forward to a greater richness of the gospel for our grandchildren. Um, we have every reason to be hopeful. That's the reverse logic of the kingdom, by the way. That's a great point, Greg. Thanks for that. What else? So... Um, Obviously, Andy Crouch culture making has been the most helpful for me individually. Uh, that was transformational for me about 10 years ago when I first read it. Um, uh, James Davidson Hunter, To Change the World, is uh, another one that I've been referring to a lot. Keller has not yet done a big culture book, 
But the stuff I talked about this morning is in almost everything that he writes and does. Um, I think a great place to begin with Keller is in uh, The Reason for God, which is sort of a, a defense of the faith, how to defend Christianity to objections in the postmodern world book. Uh, but in a couple places, he gets to the stuff about the centrality of the gospel uh, all the way through. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm getting this morning is just kind of, again, I, I've imbibed Keller as much as I have anybody over the last 20 years of pastoral ministry. And so it's just kind of his gleanings that have kind of gotten into my bloodstream uh, from his stuff. I, you can pick, pick up whatever you want to by um, Keller, and you're going to get that stuff, his cultural stuff in it. Same thing as like Piper. John Piper was one interview saying, look, I had one idea. One idea, and everything I've written and said after it was, was all that, and that is, we we are most glor- we glorify God the most. Dang it! Now I forgot what the phrase is. He failed in me. Um, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He said, "That's my one idea. God is the most glorified by us when we find Him to be beautiful, and lovely, and wondrous." Okay. All right, good. I think that's our time. Oh, except Evan wants to ask a burning question. Yeah, one of the loudest voices in this is Francis Schaeffer. If you kind of want to go back to the ultimate critique of the modern worldview, Schaeffer died in 1986, my senior year in high school. And so he did not get to see the full-orbed postmodern thing as we've lived it out in the last 35 years or so. Um, but anything by Schaeffer, um, uh, the God who was there, um, some of his video series are now free on YouTube. Uh, Schaeffer will be a great introduction for those of you that are more technically and philosophically minded. Good resource. Let me pray for us and we'll close and go ahead to worship. Lord Jesus, would you give us um, uh, ears to hear? Um, Father, so much of this feels kind of dense and kind of um, uh, not really accessible. That's my fault. Uh, But would you allow us to at least be captured by something that might make us think that this world really still needs the gospel and that you might take our our puny understandings of the gospel and really uh, blow them up, make them large uh, in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, give us, give us, make us conversant in the language of the gospel uh, and allow that, Father, to be a great impact. And we're going to start here. We're going to start in this place with our hearts, and we pray that it would leak out into Oxford and Lafayette County. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.